This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith who are organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Welcome back, everyone. This is Heart of a Heartless World. I am Ralph, and I'm here today with Chuck Collins, the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies at D.C. Uh, He is an author of books like The Wealth Hoarders, uh, Born on Third Base, and 99 to 1. And today we're going to discuss his new novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun. It's a privilege to have you on the podcast, Chuck. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ralph. Absolutely. First, first of all, in case anybody's not uh, familiar with your work or with you, could you tell us a little bit about your interests and your areas of expertise and maybe how you ended up doing the work that you do today? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, my day job is I work at the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a almost 60-year-old uh, research and advocacy group. Um, I direct the program on inequality and the common good and co-edit a website called inequality.org. And a lot of what we look at is how the concentration of wealth and power, uh, especially over the last uh, couple decades, um, harms democracy, civil society, the environment, um, and and disrupts the quality of life for everyone. Um, And I come to this work actually having kind of been born in a more advantaged circumstances. As, as you mentioned, one book I wrote was called Born on Third Base. So I, I, I grew up, uh, you know, kind of in a privileged, affluent family. And uh, so that's actually given me some insights into sort of the nature of inequality and mm-hmm. the justifications for inequality. Um, and then, I you know, as a volunteer in my ordinary day-to-day life, I'm very involved in sort of local environmental and ecological issues and, and issues around climate change and been part of uh, kind of efforts to resist expansion of new fossil fuel infrastructure and that sort of thing. We like to ask our guests a question based on Mark's oft-quoted phrase about religion that often gets taken out of context that uh, 
religion is the opium of the people. It's the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. So the question is this, how have you experienced religion as an opiate, something that suppresses liberative activity, or as the heart and soul of a suffering world, something that can energize our collective action and solidarity? Well, I, I understand that that phrase, the you know, because a lot of, I guess, organized institutional religion sort of defends the status quo. My own experience growing up, sort of in a in an Irish Catholic tradition, and then uh, you know being connected to kind of the Catholic worker movement and um, sort of very active social change advocacy within the faith community. I have just almost entirely positive experiences of, uh, you know, working with people kind of rooted in a faith practice as a source of our, uh, you know, inspiration and, and, and kind of commitment and, uh, have been surrounded by people of faith who are doing good works in the world. Mm. So, uh, for myself, I would say it's been, uh, libera- liberating, uh, personally energizing, inspirational, um, and I love the phrase that you have: the heart and soul of a, you know, tapping into the heart and soul of a suffering mm. world. Yeah, yeah. Cheers to that. Um, I love to jump into your your new book, Alter to Interrupting Sun, um, and I'll just give a, a brief synopsis, and then you can add uh, anything to that uh, when I finish. So, Alter to Interrupting Sun is the story of a community really facing climate disruption. It's kind of the backdrop of the book. And the main character, Ray, is a veteran, nonviolent activist. And then in the later half of her life, she receives a diagnosis of terminal illness. And the book opens, the very first chapter, with Ray engaging in a suicide murder, taking the life of an oil company executive for his role in delaying the responses to climate disruption. And so the rest of the book is then essentially Ray's friends and family unpacking her life, telling her story, and trying to come to terms with her violent exit as they deal with the rapid social, economic, and environmental changes around them. Well, that's that's a very good synopsis. Okay, good, uh, you know, good. and it's not a spoiler alert to say the book starts with this sort of provocative action, uh, but then it jumps forward seven years to look at sort of the the impact of Ray Kelleher's actions, uh, a considerable negative blowback, uh, the criminalization of dissent, as well as sort right. of other culture shifts. Um, and then, yes, yeah, seven years later, people are gathering to kind of make sense of her and uh, her husband, her late husband, uh, her, her, her living husband says, uh, um, look, let me, I've been thinking, I've been reading a lot about Ray's journals and the books she's been reading and the things that formed her let me offer uh, my best observations as to why she did what she did. And then the book really becomes kind of more about going back to Ray Kelleher at age 19 and sort of her formation and what shaped her uh, as a person who is lifelong committed to nonviolent action, who had elders and uh, was really shaped and inspired by uh, nonviolent uh, direct action efforts. Um, you know, why did she do what she did? So it's that exploration. Could I ask what 
inspired you to write this particular story? It's a pretty uh, unique concept. So what what kind of drew you to this to this topic? Well, well, uh, first I should say I'm not a I'm not uh, I've never thought of myself as a fiction writer. Um, I've written a lot of uh, nonfiction books, and I've tried to be a better storyteller. In this case, I just had a story kind of knocking on my door. Some of it was inspired by hearing women, uh, you know, close to seventy, kind of say things like what Ray Kelleher says, which mm-hmm. is, you know, if I were terminally ill, uh, I might consider. Uh, doing kind of a Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, action in defense of the earth. Mm. And so when I heard, you know, that kind of conversation, I kind of wanted to sort of imagine and play that out fictionally and explore, you know, what the repercussions of that would be. Um, and and so, yeah, that, that, that was kind of the inspiration, as well as kind of wanting to talk about all the people that formed it. So while it is a a work of fiction, there are some real life people who kind of show up and, and real stories and real events that happen. And that was part of my motivation was to lift up and kind of in a historic fiction way, uh, invite people into some of these stories they may not know. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite things that you do is at the end of the book, you have Ray's reading list. And so it's all of the books that influenced her uh, you know, fictionally in the story, but I, I imagine that those were some of your own uh, inspirations as well. Yeah, and and actually, I, I uh, on the website I have that kind of accompanies the book uh, Chuck Collins Writes dot com uh, for people who want to know more about the actual hist- real history behind mm-hmm. some of those movements. I have you know little video clips and other resources, um, and I don't know about. You, you, Ralph, but I've found historical fiction kind of opens up doors. I, I read a historical novel and I'm, I'm all, ah, oh, I want to learn more about this. I want to learn more about this, these people or this person or this moment in history. Um, and so I hope this book can be part of the modern, <laughs> modern uh, social movement genre. Yes, very good. Uh, one of the things that I resonated with in the book was the portrayal of ecological concern as a middle-class problem. So you have people like Reggie's father, who is an iron worker, who says that environmentalists care more about birds than about working people. And you have Toby, who's Ray's brother, and he's the, you know, the classic working-class person who gets sucked into cable news. And he actually cares deeply for, for nature, and, and he resonates with it. But he finds environmental activism to be a charade, something connected with wealthy elites and conspiracy. So what is it about – because this, this resonated with me um, and my own working class family and friends. What is it about American culture that presses environmental concern out of the, the concern of the working class? Oh, that's such a great question. I, th- I think part of it was for me growing up in the Midwest, growing up in Michigan, and uh, you know, being even though I mentioned I grew up in a sort of a privileged background, I was you know kind of around working class culture, and particularly around people who like to hunt and to fish and to just walk in the woods, and I you know it never occurred to me, and maybe this was sort of the the age you know, uh, environmental issues were not sort of uh, left, right, uh, they weren't, they had not sort of 
been pushed into the culture war framework at that point. You know, I remember right. growing up in Michigan with a Republican governor who was a great uh, conservationist and, mm. and active in, you know, in the whole idea that, yeah, the people who, who uh, were fishing in the trout streams were very attuned mm. to water issues and water contamination. I, I kind of think what's happened is, and I, and I, I actually sort of blame the fossil fuel industry and some of these uh, polluting industries of pushing environmental issues into a culture war, into a class war conflict uh, by saying, hey, look, these are elitists who care (laughs) about uh, the environment. And and it's true. There is a sort of uh, elite wing of the environmental movement that clearly seems to care more about, you know, trees than people. And uh, I think that's wrong. I think you know we, we need to understand we're we're all <laughs> woven together here. Yeah. Um, but I think in the recent decades, it has served the powerful polluting interests to kind of push care for nature, care for the earth into this polarized culture war framework. And I think that's one of the things we need to overcome. And in fact, in the book. You know, Ray Kelleher and her brother, you mentioned her brother, Toby, they they kind of are, you know, have a lot of conflict that kind of reflects the polarization we see in a lot of families. Right. And Ray really insists on staying connected to him. Uh, and, you know, even th- when it's hard. Right. And there is a moment where he says, well, you're you're a tree hugger. And she says, Toby, you, you taught me uh, <laughs> yes. how to hug trees. You 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 yes. you you were the one who taught me the deep environmental sensibilities that I have. And he's like, oh, right. You know, that's who I am too. Yes. Um, so I think, I think unfortunately, uh, it's gotten polarized and unnecessarily. Ray's life revolves around this complex web of resistance and activism. Um, she's involved in all of these different movements from uh, she starts out in, in nuclear demonstrations to uh, po- working in poverty, um, helping people with evictions and resisting war. And then finally, you know, the book ends where climate is kind of her main concern. And what, what I really appreciate about the book is that it treats these issues as natural companions. For Ray, these things all go together. So is this just a peculiar quirk of, of Ray, or do you see it as important for anyone who's seeking a more just and equitable planet that these issues kind of go together? I think part of what I try to fictionalize and dramatize is Ray's formation, uh, that she grows up in a working class family, but that is connected to place and to a forest. And her brother really introduces her. But then, you know, what forms her are uh, environmental issues, human rights, uh, she she travels to Central America and Mexico, so her kind of horizons become global. She understands the role of the U.S. in the world, uh, the harmful and kind of neocolonial role of the U.S. So she's one of those people, I think, who sees the interconnection, uh, you know, between all these issues, uh, and that just becomes how she who how she makes sense of the world. Um, and it's true. She, yeah, in a way, she's not compartmentalized. Um, she, she's a weaver of people, and she's a totally attuned to the 
forces of, of nature and, and, and the life around her. Um, so it becomes almost a part of her spiritual understanding right. of human and, and natural interconnection. I was I was reading uh, Angela Davis uh, the other day, and she is talking about this need to bridge the various issues that oftentimes uh, there can be some strain between movements like uh, race and gender and environment. And uh, for her, she says there's this need to bridge uh, and see them as one movement, uh, a movement toward justice, a movement toward toward equity for all, and that when we actually separate them, we do a disservice to to all of them. I don't know. I, f- I found that to really resonate with uh, what Ray does in this book. I And I think, yeah, I think that in, in Ray's case, um, she sees the web. Yeah. And again, maybe that's rooted in her sort of, sp- sort of spiritual uh, and nature-based aspects of her religion as well, her kind of getting into her Celtic spirituality. She just sees the world through this lens of interconnection uh, and acts on, tries to act upon that. Let's shift to talk about altars. So obviously altars are, you know, in the title of your book, um, but they, they play a significant role in the culture of the community in the book. Altars as these places to remember and honor and commune with those who have gone before us but also as the, the source of strength and sustenance. So first question here, what, what, do, what role do altars play in the book? Well, in a, in a larger sense, the, the book is an altar itself. It's, it's sort of a, a, a celebration and remembrance of those who've come before. Um, and Ray is shaped by altar traditions. So she learns about altar building in Vietnam and her friend, Brian Wilson tells her about seeing a picture of of uh, Quaker Norman Morrison, who was an anti-war activist, who who emulated himself in opposition to the Vietnam War. Brian sees his picture on altars in Vietnam, uh, and she travels to Central America and she learns sort of the the more Latin American uh, Day of the Dead type altars of remembrance and how people build altars to. Uh, you know, honor those who've come before and to grieve and to kind of draw strength. Um, so she becomes kind of an altar builder. Uh, 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 she, she has her own private altars when she's having a hard time or grappling with loss. She might build her own private altar, but she's also a, a big fan of building sort of community altars and altars of celebration. Um, and, 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 and a number of people have read the book and, and said either, I didn't realize that I was an altar builder. I kind of been doing that uh, here in my living room. Uh, Or I really want to make an altar now. I want to have an altar building practice. Um, So, yeah, I think altars is one of the important threads. And and, and Ray would say, you know, it's very, very hard to face the future without a sense of connection to your ancestors and to those who came before to draw strength and so that's part of her holistic view about um, social action. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the work of activism is is long and it's difficult and it's isolating. And Ray definitely experiences that in the book. You kind of feel that if you've had any experience with uh, working in any sort of organizing or uh, activist work, 
what role do altars play in helping to sustain that long work for Ray? But then, then maybe what sort of altering practice uh, might your book invite us into as as fellow activists? Yeah, I think I think um, well, one of the invitations is who's on your altar, and to mm. um, identify those people in your life it could be family members or ancestors or. Uh, in the case of this book, sometimes uh, activist elders and uh, people who've come before us, and to literally build an altar and to bring in elements of nature, to bring in flowers and leaves and things that are you find in the natural world and and relics and uh, you know I've I've had the honor to be part of celebrating Day of the Dead in Oaxaca, Mexico, and seeing people bring uh, plants and and living objects into their altar building. Um, but I agree, you know, I, I, I have an altar building practice and, you know, part of it is you stop by your altar, you know, once a day and maybe you light a candle and maybe you just meditate for a moment, or maybe you gaze upon the people that you're honoring and from whom you draw strength. And I think it is part of a practice that sort of helps us get out of our our temporality out of the sense of like, we're, we're, it's all just happening right now. We're not, and to understand we're part of a web, we're part of a larger thread of activity. And, uh, you know, this is kind of where our history matters, you know, where, right. where, uh, if you're part of an activist effort to, to, to look at those that came before and, and, and what, what lessons they have for us. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, uh, I don't know. It's maybe just the curse of, of youth, or of just modernity, maybe that uh, we feel like the problems we face now are completely unique to us, and that if we don't solve them, you know, it's it's all up to us, and that can lead to uh, just some serious burnout, I think. Um, but when we remember that we are only doing what we are doing now because of the the shoulders that we're standing on, of the the ancestors of the the saints who have gone before to do. The, to lay the groundwork for us to be able to even have the conversations that we're having today. Yeah. And I would say it's, it's more of a universal norm than our culture. Meaning mm -hmm. I, the more I learn about various forms of sort of altar building and, and, and ancestor, ancestor honoring in different traditions, we're kind of outliers <laughs> in terms of sort of thinking that we're, <laughs> it's all about us in this moment. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's uh, something uh, that we can learn from others. The book is full of, of groups, uh, religious groups, volunteer organizations, unions, tenant groups, farm cooperatives. Uh, even a, there's a book club that's kind of a central resistance community in the book. And it seems that groups and social connections are incredibly important to the characters in the book and for sustaining them in their work of, of activism. And I have to say that, that that felt very foreign to our own cultural moment from you know the impact of COVID, which the book does, does actually mention that, but also to social media, the breakdown of social institutions. It just seems like those social connections are almost foreign uh, to most people in our, in our current cultural moment. It seemed like in the book that those were essential for all of the work that that Ray does. So, how do you see this 
the work of groups and these social connections, how is that essential for for our work of, of justice in the world? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've done a lot of interviews about this book, but you are the person that has picked up on this in the most uh, important way to me because I really wanted to show organized people. Maybe maybe it was my own desire sort of saying, well, you know, I've read a lot of fiction, but I don't see like organized people coming together as as well represented. And in, and Ray is a weaver of people. She is a community yeah. person. She she's a joiner and she's a convener and whether it's a, you know, musical circle or uh, a dance party, she is all about bringing people together. And, um, and, and even, there's even a moment where she, she, she describes, you know, that all these people living on this farm during COVID. And she said for, for the whole society, it was kind of traumatic for the people who lived in their kind of farm community. It was an enjoyable rehearsal for a disrupted future. Right. right. And so that just sort of gives you an indication like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to face the, f- of disrupted future in our kind of fragmented, isolated form. We're going to have to find our neighbors. We're going to have to kind of come out of our individual bubbles and, uh, you know, and that doesn't mean we all have to be extroverts. In fact, you know, all of us have different needs in relation to community, but the reality is we need to be more proximate and, and near each other doesn't mean we all have to live in the same house and share the same kitchen or whatever. It's just we need to be able to call upon one another uh, and be physically together. And um, yeah, so this is this is a, a celebration of kind of people trying to form community as, a, as one of the ways to face the future. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I think most, most fiction tends toward the you know, you have one hero and that hero kind of is their raw personality and they are who they are because it's them. Um, but I think in this book, it's very clear that Ray is not just Ray. She is Ray because of everyone that she meets. She's Ray because of the groups she's a part of, because of the elders who train her, because of the moon movements that she joins. Uh, and I think that's that's a really important shift uh, for fiction. So thank you for, for writing it that way. Yeah, and if you find any other fiction that kind of does that well, let me know because I'm trying <laughs> to trying to collect. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's John Steinbeck in Dubious Battle or something. You know, there's a few <laughs> that are out there, but uh, few and far between. One of the important phrases for Ray in this book comes from Thoreau, uh, and just to kind of paraphrase his idea here that injustice is going to be part of every machine. Every system is going to have injustice, so you can't. You can't just fight every system as a whole. But when that machine requires that you become an agent of injustice, Thoreau says, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine, that you don't lend yourself to the wrong you condemn. And so this is like a this this idea of a counter friction to the machine is a central idea for Ray. And what I appreciate about your book and something we'll maybe explore in a minute is that I think you give this expanded imagination for what counter friction might look like. Not that there's just this one, there's one way to be an activist. There's one way to save the world and that's it. But actually there's all these different ways that your life can be a counter friction. 
in some ways it looks like forming a, a radical, self-sustaining landback group that removes itself completely from the system. Uh, for others, it might look like making certain ecologically conscious decisions about what you drive and what you eat and where you source your food. And for others, it looks like actually breaking the law because the laws themselves are unjust and choosing to go to prison in protest. And for others, it just looks like building a mass movement, being part of something larger than yourself. And so a uh, question here, like what does it look like for for groups, for you know, all the ones that we talked about earlier to think consciously about being a counter friction. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the fictional Ray Kelleher picks up a, a, on a Bonhoeffer quote too, which is this notion of, uh, you know, putting, putting, a, a stick in the spoke of the wheel of the, right. of the machine of injustice. So that imagery and, you know, it really does come from, uh, kind of traditions of nonviolence where you, people talk about, non-cooperation with uh, harmful or evil systems or uh, looking at complicity. Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of um, uh, John Wolman and, 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 and others who were personalists. You, you see the, the injustice in the world, if it, maybe it's war, and you say, well, I, how do I cooperate in my own life with war, war-making? Maybe my consumption levels uh, are causing harm. Um, you know, just, just this last weekend, I was uh, at the 100th birthday celebration uh, for Juanita Nelson, who didn't live to 100. But she's a character <laughs> yes. in my book. She lived well into her 80s. She was a back-to-the-land war tax resistor, right. kind of an apostle of nonviolent living, nonviolent economics. And I do think to your question, you know, what what does it look like for our movements is to say, well, if whatever you whatever you care about, whatever you're working on, what are the seeds of violence that maybe we have in our own lifestyle, in our own consumption? How do we not cooperate or disengage? Um, it could be, yeah, living with as little fossil fuel as possible. Uh, living without plastic, uh, trying to live in a way that uh, doesn't exploit or extract uh, other people's labor, you know. So, and that's that's a that's a journey, and that's a, a a lifelong commitment. And so, it was fun to be with a bunch of people celebrating this uh, Juanita Nelson's life because what they took, what we all took away from from the Nelsons, Wally and Juanita Nelson, is. What does it look like to try to live a life with integrity and to resist living a life of cooperating and colluding with unjust systems? And uh, so, yeah, it was really a positive, cool. affirming way to say, you know, eat, we have agency when it right. comes to that. We, we, right. we, we're part of these larger systems, but we can delink from some of them in important ways. Yeah, I think that's that is the challenge uh, of of discerning here what what's actually the the most effective way to to be that counter friction because you do have uh, even coming from the fossil fuel industry they really want to put the agency on the consumer on the individual to say if you buy yourself if you recycle that's how we're going to change you know that's how we're going to save all of this and so I think in the book you give all these 
different examples of communities discerning, actually, this is the the way that we're going to be a counter friction. And I think it, at least to me, it looked like all of these different communities doing uh, something kind of uniquely there in their contexts that didn't actually, it wasn't all the same, but all of those together actually were doing something important. I, I, yeah. And I, and I, I can't help but think of like a sort of Dorothy Day and Peter Marin and the founders of the Catholic worker movement who, you know, talk about personalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I wish this, I'll, I'll pay my taxes. So these institutions will try to alleviate poverty. And it's another thing to say, well, actually I'm, I'm part of a system that, you know, benefits from inequality and poverty. What does it look like to not cooperate with that uh, or to take personal responsibility? And, and, and in the case of my sort of fictional Ray Kelleher, she would, she would say, yeah, we, we are all responsible for climate change. You know, we, particularly those of us in the Northern hemisphere who, uh, you know, affluent and, and, and middle-class lifestyles of, you know, burned a lot of carbon over the last century. We've benefited from this uh, global system of coal, gas, and oil. Um, and at the same time, she she's as she grows older, she says, well, there are some people who have even more power and agency in the system who I now hold responsible. The, the leaders right. of a couple dozen fossil fuel companies, they wielded their power in a way to uh, block options and provide, you know, fuel disinformation. So there's a yes and there. There's a yes, we are all responsible. And in, in, in Ray's evolving understanding, some people are more responsible for the, the fate that we're facing right now. Obviously, one of the key subjects of this book is the role of, of violence in resistance. And I thought that you framed this in a really interesting way to kind of create space for dialogue because it's such a it's such a sticky conversation uh, that sometimes it can be hard to even really think about it openly. And and so I think the way that you do it in the book uh, is you know the people who are telling the story about Ray they actually disagreed <laughs> with her violent tactic, right? So she has really one violent act in her life. It's at the end of her life, and everyone in her community says, don't do it. And then she does it, and then they're trying to reconcile with it. And so I find that you could kind of explore this idea of someone at the end of humanity's rope acting out this violent form of resistance um, in defiance of the trajectory of her own moral boundaries and the trajectory of her life. Um, but you can do that without giving this blanket glorification um, and so I think there really is a question from your book. What tactics are on the table when the fate of human history is at stake? Well, that is the sort of um, core provocation uh, in the novel. And I do think we are kind of on a collision course in that our current political system is just completely incapable yeah. of responding to the, the gravity of the ecological crisis. Right. And so people are going to be feeling desperate. I mean, you know, we're going to have more and more summers like the one we're having now, you know, floods. I'm, I'm, I live in the brave little state of Vermont. I mean, we have just been hammered to the point where mm. people are literally having prayer sessions to hope it stops raining and flooding. Wow. Um, you know, so 
we're, 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 we're heading into a, a new abnormal disrupted future. And yet here's the fossil fuel industry over here, still building new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, yep. There's even a proposal near where I live to expand the, the private jet capacity of this little airport <laughs> four times, you know, things like yeah. that where, yeah. so that disconnect, that collision course is just going to keep growing. And I think there will be an escalation of tactics. And I think that will include, you know, more people doing like extinction rebellion and climate defiance. And, you know, uh, you know, yesterday, the governor of Massachusetts, who's a, a very, you know, wonderful person, but, you know, climate defiance is disrupting her fundraiser on Nantucket because she's <laughs> not committing to no new fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah. So you're going to see more of that kind of outside the the channels that you know the legal and traditional channels because those channels are not working people putting their bodies in the in the way of new fossil fuel infrastructure i can think of a lot of people are not going to want this new airport expanded um you have the kind of um the 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 witness of the vietnamese monks uh the self-emulation setting themselves on fire that norman morrison who's a kind of described in my novel, but there was a man, Win Bruce, uh, you know, a, a Buddhist from Colorado who uh, emulated himself two Earth days ago around climate right. change. There's a new dramatic film called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is sort of talking about eco sabotage. So, I actually think we are going to see an escalation of tactics. My own view is. Uh, to try to you know hold the line around harm and violence, but to but to think about what bold action each of us are called to do in defense of the earth, and I think we're going to be called to to dramatic bold action, and I actually think it will help turn the corner. Um, I do think two years from now we're going to be in a very different place than we are now in terms of the climate change right. movement. Part of it's the it's getting harder to ignore the it impacts, yeah. and there's going to be much more f- focused attention on the culpability of this fossil fuel industry and their financial enablers. Yes, and I think that will help us kind of laser focus in on a series of tactics and and uh, pressure points that will help sort of turn the tide. Um, yeah, that is you know one of the main things that. Ray's final act does is to kind of demystify who is making those decisions, right? She publishes the list, right? Of <laughs> these are the names of the people who are lobbying and shutting down any sort of government or uh, organized effort to address these climate issues. Um, and I think, yeah, this kind of demystifying, it's not just this unavoidable system that you can't control. No, there are, this is a human, <laughs> human, uh, human made disaster. Yeah. I mean, Ray, Ray in her own, uh, and again, she's at the end of her life and she's literally facing down her own terminal illness, but she believes it is a Bonhoeffer moment in the fight to defend the earth. Well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer was a, a pat, lifelong pacifist who participated in a, in a, a failed attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Uh, she's aware of that. She's steeped in that theology and history right. um, and kind of thinks we need some dramatic action. 
And I'm not sure, you know, and, and I think the book pretty well shows that Ray's action really has a lot of negative blowback. It doesn't really harm the movement. It even harms people in her own family. Right. Um, but there's a, there's a, uh, a, there's a, a reference to an action of six grandmothers, also terminally ill, calling themselves the good ancestors who self-emulate in the lobby of ExxonMobil. Well, that turns out to be, in a fictional context, the action that turns the tide because yeah. it breaks through the whatever the Kardashians are having for lunch discussion <laughs> yes. or whatever cultural distractions to, to, to focus society on why would six grandmothers right. uh, make this action. And I think that, unfortunately, we're, we're going to need to th- – have some dramatic action to wake up our our culture to the to the clear and present dangers we're we're facing down here. Hmm. Well said, and connected to this idea of drama, uh, I just wanted to lastly here talk about the role of of fiction and art and music. And uh, you quote uh, David Fleming where he talks about carnival and torchlight as these creative endeavors. What is their the role of art? for cultivating an imagination that breaks outside of the possibilities that we find ourselves, you know, that late stage capitalism presents to us. What's, what's great about um, sort of David Fleming and and the reason my fictional Ray Kelleher is enamored with him is he, he understands the, the power of celebration. You know, yeah, there's all this obviously work we need to do, but actually humans throughout our existence we love carnival. We love to celebrate. We love to have dance parties. And that is a huge part of who we are and how we're going to build that community, come out of our isolation. Um, and yeah, my, my, this book is kind of an offering in the trying to imagine a different kind of future mm. um, in the tradition of, you know, Ursula Le Guin and, right. uh, you know, Octavia Butler and others, you know, the, the role of fiction and art is to help us imagine something different, to help us break out of the whatever mental rut we're in and uh, through ecstatic experience, through celebration, through, uh, you know, connecting through art and, op- and, and other visions that will help us in this moment. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's really the spirit that Ray brings to this is, you know, when you're stuck <laughs> in the moment, you know, don't forget it is our nature to to mm. be together and to celebrate whatever whatever we can. The yeah. harvest in yes. this time of year. <laughs> yes. Right. I think, you know, this is very adjacent to what I feel like we're trying to do with the religious socialism work is to say that uh we can't really get to those big works of justice without having the whole self included. And so that includes the spiritual, that includes the creative, that includes art and social connection. And I think there is this missing gap, something lacking in the discourse about, it, you know, whether it's climate change or whether it's these other uh, injustices that we're, that we're facing down, that we've got to celebrate as we go. We've got to include our whole selves, our spiritual selves, our creative selves, in this work for, for justice. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was kind of struck, um, 
in the last couple of years and coming out of the whatever wherever we are in relation to this pandemic but yeah the the there's been a lot in my community a lot of face to face outdoor music events when possible and uh more kind of parades and you know as you as you quoted more torchlight you know more <laughs> more marching with a with a torch you know not not like the uh white supremacists but you know kind of in a celebrated way so i i agree you know and and ray says at one point you know quoting the sort of Emma Goldman, you know, I, if I, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, <laughs> Exactly. but I'll, I'll, I'll bring the silly hats and wigs too. Yes. And that was part of that. Uh, yeah, again, you know, uh, when I've been in Mexico and around carnival and around day of the dead, there's this, it's a celebration of life. Uh, so yeah, we need to tap into those parts of ourselves and our nature, uh, to, to sustain ourselves. Well said. Uh, do you have any any final thoughts on these topics you'd like to share? No, it's been a a fantastic conversation, and uh, I look forward to you know people's you know I hope I hope they'll read Alter to Interrupting Sun and, and and let me know what you think and and sort of create your own art and and spirited ways of communicating around these themes and mm. uh, build an altar and and draw strength from it. Yes. Well said. Amazing, Chuck. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure to read your book and a better pleasure to, to just be with you today. So thanks for joining and uh, peace to you. Peace, Ralph. And thank you for having me part of this conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to check out theologybeer.camp and use the promo code HEARTGODPOD. Solidarity, everybody. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org.